You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. All right, if you would, go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14. Uh, we're going to take a second look at this beautiful verse. Uh, one second. All right, last week, I made a problem in our church known to you, and that problem is a lack of real fellowship and personal ministry towards one another, and I spoke about that at length. I did the best that I could to point out that you cannot have personal ministry without first having some kind of actual communion and fellowship with one another. In fact, again, I tried to point this out, Paul doesn't feel a need to command any kind of friendship or fellowship before this verse comes. He just assumes it when he gives the commands about ministering to one another because ministry cannot be done apart from closeness with the body of Christ. Right? So, as Christ made us one body in him, so we also should live as one people and take care of one another. As his people, we should love what Jesus loves and Jesus loves each one of the members of his body. Right, so last week, we, we saw very clearly that we need to be close to one another in order to carry out the commands to love and take care of one another. But what does that look like? What does it look like to actually take care of each other? It's not enough to say, love one another. It's not enough to say that. Now, before you think I'm crazy, that is a great summary of how we are to treat one another. Right? Love your neighbor. Love your brother and sister in Christ is a great summary, but a summary necessarily means that there are many specifics that are being summarized in the summary, and a summary without knowing the specifics is not very helpful. All right, so, so then, how are we to love and care for one another in the church? What does that look like? Well, I'm glad you asked, and if you didn't ask, I have a microphone and you do not, so you're going to hear the answer, right? So what does that look like, okay? God in his wisdom has provided us with specifics in this verse for what it looks like for us to care for one another. So we're going to take some time this evening and just go through each of the four commandments given in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14, uh, and in doing so, we're going to see very practically how we can be of service to one another. We're going, to, we're going to see some of the ways that we can minister to and actually love one another as the Lord Jesus loves us. So that's where we're going. We're going to do some groundwork to get there, but we're eventually going to walk through all four of these commands. But now, if you would, as a sign of respect for our God, if you're able, please stand with me for the reading of his inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Just one verse, very short. Commit this to memory. 1 Thessalonians 5.14. And we urge you, Brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we ask you for mercy this evening. Be merciful to us sinners and help us to understand your word. Be merciful to us and convict us of our sins. Be merciful to us. And show us our Lord Jesus who has taken away our sins. Be merciful to us and instruct us in the ways of righteousness for your name's sake. Be merciful to us and give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to be receptive to your word. Bless us now, we ask. And we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. 
All right, so let, let's begin by uh, summarizing some of what we learned last week. Again, I want to build on that foundation. Um, we look at the first five words of this verse, and we urge you, brothers. The Apostle Paul, context for you, the Apostle Paul is giving some final instructions to the church in Thessalonica uh, in chapter 5, verses 12 through 28. And he's giving instructions about maintaining peace, order, unity, and mutual care within the church. Right? And that's where we find this verse about pastoral, personal ministry towards one another. Paul says, we urge you, brothers. And we noted last week that Paul is saying this as an apostle. This is an apostolic urging. Right? He's an apostle of the Lord Jesus. That means he is a hand-picked spokesman for Christ. So when Paul says, we urge you, brothers, he's speaking as an apostle. And therefore, we can understand this as saying, the Lord Jesus, through Paul, urges you, brothers. And it's an urgent commandment, right? It's as if Paul is saying, brothers, don't neglect this. It's of utmost importance that you practice the things that I'm telling you. Christ himself calls you to do it. So do not neglect the command of our Lord. So he urges us. And we saw last week, again, that Paul calls us brothers in this verse. We urge you, brothers. Part of the ground of the commands that follow in this verse is that the people of God, the church, the body of Christ, that is to care for one another, is a family. Right? That little word, brothers, is loaded with theological significance. Again, it means that we are a family. It's not just a throwaway religious word, right? a religious-sounding word. It means that by faith in him, we are united together in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he has, by his death and resurrection, paid for the sins of his people and has accomplished their salvation. And in doing so, the Lord Jesus has made the many into one family, right? Sharing one common faith, one common Lord, one common spirit, one common God and Father over us all. In Christ, we have a mutual salvation, mutual goals, mutual status, mutual desires to honor and glorify him. Right? We have much in common through him. We are made one in him, one people of God. And being that one people, we must earnestly love one another. Why? Because it is Jesus who loved each one of us and gave his life for each one of us so that we would be cleansed from our sins and made part of his family. We ought to earnestly love one another and care for one another as brothers and sisters in Christ because our Lord earnestly loves each one of us. We ought to count one another as precious to ourselves because the Lord Jesus counts each one of us precious to himself. He loves his entire body. Right? Just as you love every square inch of your body, he loves each member of his church. He loves each one of his family members. And so we ought to love what he loves because we love him so dearly and are ourselves now part of his family. He loves the many and has united us together in himself. And now our duty and our privilege is to imitate him and care for one another as members of this family. We are now to bear the family resemblance, you could say. And as the head of the family has loved, we are now to love one another. So brothers and sisters, again, we ought to love. As God intends earthly, biological families to love and care for one another, much more does he intend his spiritual family to take care of each other. So remember this. It's a phrase that I try to remind myself when it comes to ministering to you guys, and it's, it's this. Family takes care of family. Whenever I don't want to minister to you, 
and there are days where I don't. Write that down. <laughs> right? I try to remind myself, family takes care of family. Christ has taken the many and made us one. I must love them as he has loved them as well. Remind yourself that. So that's the sum of what we learned last week, if I could nutshell it for you. Uh, but there's something else that I'd like to dig into before we get to the commands themselves, and that's this. Who is being addressed in this verse? Look down. Look at Who's being addressed? Again, it's that word brothers, right? The brethren are being addressed, right? Which, by the way, that's a word we should have kept, right? We shouldn't have let that word go away in the English. Brethren, it's just helpful. Uh, the brethren, it sounds much cooler than saying the brothers are being addressed. Anyway, whatever, I'm, I like the Puritans. So our brothers and sisters in the Lord, the brethren are being addressed. That is to say, it is the congregation in Thessalonica as a whole that is being addressed in this verse. It is the regular members of the church who are being addressed in this verse, not just the pastors. From the most mature and gifted in the church to babes in Christ who are still learning the essentials, everyone is being commanded in this verse. This is a call to a form of pastoral ministry. And you're going to say, well, hold on, I'm not a pastor. What I mean by pastoral ministry is caring for the people of God. It's a call to that. But it is the rank and file membership being addressed in addition to church officers. So there's a certain level of ministry then and care that God expects of all of his family. We're called to be involved in promoting the good and health of the congregation. Although elders play uh, a very important role within the church, please hear me, though Pastor Steve and I play a very important part in the church under Christ's government, uh, government, the task of maintaining the well-being of the church does not just fall to the church officers. It doesn't just fall to the elders. Members, each one of you, share a mutual responsibility to help one another in building one another up in the faith. Let me just tease this out a little bit more for you. Right? Just as it is not exclusively elders being commanded in this verse, hear me because I know how some of you think, it is also not a category of super-Christians being addressed, right? In my notes, that's in quotation marks, right? It's not super-Christians being addressed. And you know what I'm talking about. People in the church tend to think like this because I hear how you all talk about yourselves. I'm just a regular member, right? I am not especially wise or especially knowledgeable in the Bible. I'm not especially holy. I'm not a super Christian. I'm just a regular Christian. I'm just a regular member of the church. So someone else is going to have to do ministering. Not me. I'm just a regular person. I'm not a super Christian. Wrong. Right? Use your Trump voice there. Wrong. Right? If you're thinking that, you're wrong. These things are commanded to the whole church. Right? Whatever your level of maturity or gifting is, all are to take part in these things in as much as they are able, and as much as we are able. Some, no doubt, are going to be more mature, and some are going to be less mature. Some are going to be more gifted, others are going to be less gifted. But all are to take part in the work to the best of their current abilities while still seeking to grow. Let me illustrate this for you. Personal example from my own life. A dear brother in the Lord gently challenged me years ago about some of the movies and TV shows that I used to watch. Here's what he asked me. Brother, pastor, how do you reconcile the Bible's call 
to holiness and godliness with being entertained by that kind of stuff that you watch. That hit me hard, and I would imagine that would hit some of you hard as well if you would think about that. It hit me hard. It made me angry, right? If I'm going to be real, it made me angry whenever he asked me that question. I didn't like it, but he was right. He was right. I needed to let go of the filth that I was being entertained by. But this brother was not a mature Christian when he asked me that question. Mature question, he asked me. But he, overall, was not a mature believer. He was actually a baby Christian. He hadn't been a Christian for even a year when he asked me that. Though clearly he was seeing things in the word that I had been ignoring, to my own shame. But what happened that day? That baby Christian admonished the idol, and you'll see what I mean here in a minute when we get to that part. He gently rebuked me, and probably didn't even mean to, but he challenged me and he rebuked me. He admonished me, and the Lord used it. And still to this day, uses that man's words whenever I am considering choices about entertainment and what honors Christ. He was a baby Christian, and to my own shame, I was his pastor when I needed that rebuke. And the Lord used him to correct me. All that is to say, that example is to say this to you. All Christians, that is all of you, if you profess faith in the gospel, all Christians are called to participate in ministry towards one another, and you cannot exclude yourself. Why? Because you do not know what God can do through you as you seek to minister to one another. Even in your ignorance and weakness, and immaturity even, you don't know what the Lord might be pleased to do. Surprising things can happen. The Lord is sovereign, is he not? He is sovereign to use whoever, whenever he pleases to mold and shape his church, even the people who are not super Christians, but just regular Christians. Which, by the way, there is no super Christians. That's stupid. He's pleased to use regular Christians, and that means all of us. Wherever you're at, however mature or immature you may be right now. So now it is clear... I hope, and if it's not, we can fight about it later. But it's clear now that there is no excuse for you to exclude yourself from what Paul says here. No excuse. What follows in this verse is meant for every single one of us, every single Christian in Christ's church. To turn a blind eye, then, is to sin against God. And to have neglected these things in the past means that you have been in sin and need to repent if you haven't already. So I implore you by Christ, listen to and obey these commands that follow. Right, so what is it then? What, what is Paul then urging us to do? There's four commandments here. And these commands help us to see what some of our obligations are towards one another as the people of God. So let's crack through them then. These are your responsibilities to one another as well as mine. What are they? First, Paul says, admonish the idol. Admonish the idol. Now, most people think that this is a command against laziness, right? And that would be included here, no doubt. That was actually a problem in Thessalonica. But more literally, this phrase is actually rendered, instruct the disorderly. Instruct the disorderly. The idle are those who are undisciplined, not maintaining proper order, but are instead neglecting their duties. It's a word with military overtones, right? Someone who is not walking in step with their fellow soldiers or who is neglecting their duty as a soldier as, and not doing what they should be would be called an idle person. It's a tactos, 
right? It's the negative form of the word we get tactical from. It's a disorganized person, an unruly person. An idle person, again, is unruly. They're those who will not do the work prescribed to them and who will waste time in things not commanded. Idleness is any kind of undisciplined living or neglect of those duties that Jesus Christ calls us to do as his people. The idle are those who are willfully choosing to not respond to the teaching and examples of the apostles laid down in Scripture. So idleness can manifest itself in bigger ways, in very grievous sins like fornication, the use of pornography, stealing, physical violence, teaching heresy, what we would call big sins, very grievous sins. Or it can manifest itself in what we would deem lesser sins, like gossiping, apathy towards your fellow members, ungodly entertainment choices, missing church for no good reason, not disciplining your children. But whether they are more or less grievous sins, it is all idleness. All of it is disorderly conduct that is not in step with the word of God, and so it needs addressed. Brothers and sisters, know this. An idle person, by definition, is in sin. They are not repenting and submitting to biblical teaching about ethics and right living and right belief. They're not walking in step with Christ as they should. They are disorderly. Literally, their lives are out of order, and they need to repent. And our duty to such a person, and I'll remind you real quick before you get arrogant or have too many people on your mind, we are all this person from time to time. Although if you have someone on your mind, you should be thinking about what I'm getting ready to say. We are all this person from time to time, though. And our duty towards such a person is to admonish them, says Paul. Admonish the idol. Now, to admonish means to show disapproval. Right? To give a warning about improper behavior and remind someone of their duties. To admonish someone does carry a note of rebuke. Right? Now, listen, it's not an excessively harsh rebuke. It's not a rebuke for the sake of meanness. That's, that's sinful. To admonish someone is to make it known very clearly to the one in sin that sin is present and repentance is necessary. And then instructing them in how they should live. It's giving a gentle rebuke, naming the sin, drawing their attention to it, calling them to repentance and renewed faith in Christ, and then showing them from the Word of God what they ought to do instead of the sin. It's to give an example for how they should mend their ways by telling them and then showing them. And then showing them how they should bear fruit in keeping with their repentance. And, and, and to admonish is, is not to give a bare criticism. I can't, I can't stress that enough. It's not just to give a bare criticism. It is criticism, right? You are going to criticize the person for how they're living. But it's done with a loving heart that is filled with a desire to see that brother or sister come out from their idleness and sin and honor Christ as Lord. I can't stress this enough. It's all done from love. We don't want to see our brothers and sisters fall into sin. Why? Because we know sin is deadly. And it hurts people. We love them. We want, them to, we want to see them flourish in their walk with Christ. So we admonish one another. And a quick note here, because I know how a lot of us tend to think, and I'm stealing this from my brother Gary Chaffins. If you don't admonish the idol, it's not because you're too polite. Or because you're just afraid of confrontation. Right? I'm not a confrontational person. That's not why. 
If you refuse to admonish the idol, it's because you don't love them enough. And you're letting your fear and desire for self-preservation and your desire for being liked get in the way of actually doing your brother or sister some real good. When you refuse to admonish the idol, it's because you're selfish and you don't love your brother or sister enough. But there are more people in our family than, than just the disobedient and idle. There are also people in our family who are faint-hearted. And for them, Paul says, encourage the faint-hearted. Now, someone who's faint-hearted is someone who is lowly, scared, anxious, and fearful. Christian, be tender with this group. Be tender with the faint-hearted. A faint-hearted person is someone who knows their inadequacy. They're almost crushed under the weight of their circumstances. They are greatly discouraged. They are people who are very near to giving up. The faint-hearted are the grieved and saddened. The ones full of sorrow and full of mourning. Again, I thought this was a great definition. The one who is very near to giving up. The faint-hearted have a broken spirit. This might be someone who is going through a difficult time in their marriage. Even a divorce. Or a tough family fight that they're dealing with where there is no peace in their home. Or mental or physical health issues on their plate. And their problems in their mind are insurmountable. There is no way in this person's mind that they will not be utterly crushed under the weight of their problems and grief. And so they are faint of heart. They are discouraged. They come to, they're to the point of giving up and being consumed and overcome by their trials. Brothers and sisters, please hear me. Be gentle with these. Be gentle with these. The apostle says to encourage them. And to encourage them simply means to speak a comforting word to them. To sympathize with them in their distress. Even to weep with them. And to speak words that give comfort to their weary hearts. To speak a comforting word. So, what kind of comforting word? Right, that's the question. What kind of comforting word? Right, because that's what everyone always says. I don't know what I'm supposed to say to them. Right, is that not like the number one thing? Like we see someone, they're faint-hearted and we're afraid to get involved because I don't know what to say. Why is that? Well, because you know, because you know you, that you don't have anything very comforting to say in and of yourself, do you? You don't have, you're not wise, you're stupid. Right, let's call it what it is. The Bible calls us that. Right, we're foolish. We're ignorant most of the time. We are not wise. We are not especially comforting in and of ourselves. But Christian, you have the word of God. We tend to forget that. Everyone says, I don't know what to say to that person who is in pain. Christian, you have the Bible. You have the very words of comfort that come from the Lord himself. So you comfort them with that. You comfort the weary-hearted with the word of God. And you remind them of who their God is. You remind them of who God is and the confidence that they can have in Him to rescue them at the right time and to preserve them through their pain until that time. You, you remind them of mercy and grace and strength that comes from our Lord and His goodness toward us. You remind them that they matter to God and that He is with them. As we're told in Psalm 23, I will fear no evil for you are with me. You remind them that God is patient with them and their inadequacy. And he has pity on them as a father has pity on his crying child. 
You remind them of Christ and the salvation that he's wrought for them by his cross. Remind them of the blessings they have in Christ. And you remind them that there is a coming day when all suffering will end and we will see the Lord Jesus face to face. Christian, you remind them what the word of God says. You can't comfort them very well because you're not that smart, but God has given you his word that is sufficient for every good work. As Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, that includes the work of encouraging the faint-hearted. You remind them what the word says. We tell them what God has said about them and about himself and about their situation and about his goodness toward them. Hear me. We are to, by the word of God, persuade them to not give up. Persuade them to not give up. But instead, persuade them to continue on in the strength of their master. Encourage the faint-hearted. Third, Paul tells us to help the weak. Now, the weak are those who are in need. In any way, really, this is a very broad category. The financially weak, the spiritually weak, the mentally weak, the physically weak. And I say that this category often bleeds into the faint-hearted because the weak and needy can only be weak and needy so long before they usually become faint-hearted. So there's some overlap there most of the time. But the weak are those who are in need of some kind of help. Please hear me. The weak are those who are thought little of by the world and considered to be a burden by many. Why? Because they need help. You could probably call the weak here, rightly, the needy. These are the poor, the destitute, the marginalized, the frail, the sick, the weak in faith, those broken down, those who need help. And towards those who are needy and in need of help, what does Paul say? Help them. Help the weak. Help those who need help. But more literally, hold fast to them. I like that. Hold fast to them. Cling to them. Cling to them. Bear with them. Hold them up. Support them. Take an interest in them. Christian, hear that. Take an interest in your needy brothers and sisters. Take an interest in the weak. Don't disregard them. Pay attention to them. Don't give up on them. Care for them. A good definition is remain loyal to them. Don't leave them to themselves to figure out their situation. Do not forsake them. Help them. However you're able, however you're equipped to help, help them. Do that. Whatever it is. Show compassion to them. Don't be rough with them. Show compassion. They're weak. Handle them gently and seek to serve them. And hear me on this. Those of you who are strong, who have no real immediate need, hear me. You who are strong have an obligation to those who are weak. If you're strong today, you are to take an interest in those who are in need. By God's grace, you are strong. Why? So that you might be of help to those who are not. This is how God has designed the body of Christ to function, isn't it? We all take turns being weak and strong and so help one another until the Lord comes. Hear me, the church has a place for the weak. It is on the backs of the strong. Until such a time as God determines by his grace to bring them out from their weakness. Don't forget that. You who are strong today, don't forget that. You are blessed by God with that strength so that you might be able to serve those in need of help. 
And lastly, we are to be patient with them all. How wise is God to command this here? Be patient with them all as you, com- as you care for one another. Each of these three groups have very special needs, and they will often take time to grow. It'll take time for a lot of their problems to resolve, which means you're probably going to be helping some of them for quite some time. And hear me, time coupled with all... I wish I could have told me this when I was first a pastor. Time coupled with difficulty can produce sinful anger and irritability that is out of step with the call to love one another. Time plus difficulty equals a possibility of sinful irritation. So, patience needs to be exercised at all times with our brothers and sisters. We tend to get frustrated when we seek to do good for others, Right? We tend to expect them to just get better. Right? Remember that mad TV skit? Stop it. Right? Just stop doing that. Or just, how foolish is this? I'm sure you've heard someone say this to a depressed person. Have you considered just not being sad? <laughs> Wish I would have thought about that. Right? Like, like, that's like the dumbest. But we want them to just get better. Right? And we get frustrated when they don't immediately get better. When we've come to them multiple times to help with their issues, it is very, very easy to get frustrated and irritated. So we're reminded by the apostle to be patient with one another. We must be patient. Brothers and sisters, we are in this together. Right? We're in it for the long haul. What do I mean by that? Until you die or Jesus comes back, we are in this together. Straight up. We're stuck with each other. We need to be patient with each other. But those who need the most help, whether they're stubborn or just always seem to be needy, they can wear on our patience. You, you know as well as I do that it is very easy for us to ignore our brothers and sisters in need and only spend time with those who are like us or are doing well. And don't you act like you don't know what I'm talking about. It is easy to spend time with the strong. It is easy to spend time with the disciplined. And it is easy to spend time with the cheerful. It's easy to be in fellowship with those who are generally doing well and are fairly strong and mature in the faith. You know it's true. It's okay to admit that. It's easier to spend time with those people. It's easier to interact with those people. But it's a scary messy and downright frustrating thing at times to get into the mix with people who really need help, whether that be admonishment, encouragement, or some other kind of help. And that's why Paul says we need to be patient with each kind of person. Oftentimes, change is slow. And we all need someone to be patient with us from time to time, do we not? You do. We're all going to be part of one of these groups at some point. Remember that. And do unto others as you would have them do unto you. We need someone to love us as well because we ourselves are frustrating. So be patient with one another as you seek to do good. But you know, when we consider these commands, we really see that what we're called to do here is to love the way that the Lord Jesus loves. Isn't it? We see these things. In the earthly ministry of Jesus, don't we? He admonished his disciples when they're thinking or acting foolishly and not walking in step with him. 
Lord, who, who's, who's the greatest among us? Who's going to sit at your right? Do you listen to anything that I say? It's Jesus' response, essentially. He admonishes the idol, and he calls them to repentance. And to imitate him, he admonishes them. In his earthly ministry, he encouraged the faint-hearted. Do you not remember how gentle and tender Jesus was with the prostitute who anointed his feet? She knew what she was. She was broken. And he spoke words of comfort to her and forgave her for her sins. As Isaiah said of the Messiah, a bruised reed he will not crush. He encouraged those who were faint of heart. And oh, how he helped the weak. Oh, how he helped the weak. How he helped those who were in desperate need. Sinners. Sinners who were dead in sin. Unable to do anything to save themselves. Unable to do anything spiritually good. Weak and needy. Jesus helped us. He helped the weak by giving himself as the sacrifice for sin so that the sinner by faith in him could be forgiven of their sins and granted eternal life. We who are weak and sinful and cannot help ourselves, Jesus helped us. How he helps the weak. He saved us by grace. He helped the helpless by giving his life for ours to save us from our sins. And still to this day, he continues to show all of these kindnesses to us, doesn't he? He rebukes us and admonishes us by his word and spirit and shows us how we ought to live. He corrects us when we're disorderly so that we can walk nearer to him because he loves us. He encourages us. He's kind and mild. And he reaffirms his promises to those who are near the breaking point. And he holds fast to the weak. As we often sing, he will hold me fast. He, he doesn't call us pathetic and abandon us because we're too needy, though he would have every right to do so had he not covenanted himself to us. Far from it, he bears us up and he picks us up and he helps us in our weaknesses. And he is patient. Oh, he is the God of patience. With all of his people, he's patient, never ceasing in his faithful, steadfast love for us. Brothers and sisters, to walk in the commands of this verse is to imitate your Savior who loves you in all of these ways. It's to show the same love to others that you have been shown and continue every day to be shown by the Lord Jesus. To walk in these commandments is to love one another as Jesus loves us. So I have three brief things to say to you by way of application now. The first is this, repent. 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 I would wager everything that I own that every single one of us have some repenting to do in light of these commandments. Not one of us walks perfectly in these things. There's selfishness and cowardice in every one of us that needs repented of. So get on your knees before God and cry out, forgive me, holy God, for neglecting my brothers and sisters. For allowing the idol to remain foolish and out of step with no rebuke or admonishment. For allowing the faint-hearted among us to go without an encouraging word. For despising the weak and allowing them to go without help. For not patiently loving my brothers and sisters. Repent. Recognize your lack of obedience to these commands for what it is. It's sin. Recognize your sin and repent. Confess it. See its ugliness when you contrast it with the beauty of Christ. 
Agree with God that it's vile. See how it is at odds with Christ's love and contrary to the unity that we have in him. And repent. And know this, you should repent with the knowledge of free and full forgiveness. Because contrary to our lack of love for one another, the Lord's love knows no bounds to those who come to him in faith and repentance. So you can repent in peace knowing that you will not be turned away because he loves better than you do. Praise God. Second thing, actually do the things commanded here. (laughs) Duh. Actually do them. Actually do them. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Don't practice false repentance that has no actual life change. Because that's what it is whenever you claim to be repentant but nothing changes. It's false repentance and it's a mockery of God. You think he doesn't see through that? Christian, know one another, as I said last week. Be in fellowship with one another and then minister to one another in these ways. As James tells us, very famous verse, you all know it, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So often we hear sermons that call us to do something and to do something that maybe we find uncomfortable, that we're not accustomed to doing and we just hear it. Right, We just hear it and that's it, man. There's no action coupled with it. Right? People say, man, that was such a convicting sermon. What are you going to do with it? To hear the word and not act upon it is evil. It's not just wrong in a generic sense. It's sin. It's evil. Hear me, please. We feel, often we do this, we feel the prick of conviction from the Spirit of God, and then we just push it down for a week or two because we know then it'll go away. That is wickedness. It's wickedness. It's satanic, actually, if you're going to call it what it is. Satan knows the word and refuses it. When you hear only, but do not act upon what you hear, you imitate Satan. Don't be that person. Let the word of God have its full effect on you so that you actually submit to it because you love the one who has given the command. Do what you've been commanded and honor the Lord Jesus who commanded it. Our last point of application. And children, you have been great this evening. Thank you. I want you to recognize how Jesus has loved you in these ways. Recognize it. Really meditate on it and give it real thought. Sit in it for a while, so to speak. Think about how he loves you in all of these ways and rejoice in it. Worship and praise him for his great love and kindness towards you. And then set your sights on imitating it. You've received this love freely. Freely to you at the cost of his life but freely to you. Now please go and imitate the great lover of our souls. As you have loved one another, or as you have been loved, go now and do likewise to one another. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you. We thank you that in Christ you have loved us in all of these ways. God, I pray that you would help us to see that. 
And that seeing that, you would stir a great desire in us to say, I don't just want to see it. I want to be like that. I want to be like the one who, who, who has died for me. I want to be like the one who is this beautiful. I want to imitate that beauty. Put that in our hearts, Lord, that we would repent of our selfishness, of our disobedience, and that we would bear fruit in that repentance. Let that repentance be real and not just lip service to you. But true repentance, Lord, help us to love. Lord, I pray that you would let us get a glimpse of the love of Christ because if we would see just a sliver of it, we would be changed. Help us, God. Be merciful to us. And help us to be the church that you call us to be in your word. Help us to love each other. I pray this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.